Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Tuesday, November the 10th. Today on the program, we'll speak with Reggie Cicchini in Washington about the latest of uh, what's going on south of the border. We will also be talking about a guy who's come up with an ingenious way to reunite snowbirds with their cars on the other side of the border so that they can, you know, head down to warmer destinations this winter. But first... Alec Manazian's trial will begin today. It is going to be a video conference trial. He's the man responsible for the Young Street van attack, the worst mass killing event in Toronto history. The defense is going to try and prove that he is not criminally responsible. So we invited Joseph Newberger, our 640 Toronto legal analyst on the show, to talk a little bit about the case. Ten people died here today. Um, Fifteen people were seriously injured. Um, I think it's important to ask how you feel about that. I feel like uh, I accomplished my mission. You feel like you accomplished your mission? Yes. Okay. Is this an uphill battle for the defense? I mean, especially when we talk about that interrogation tape that we heard where he says, you know, I, 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 my mission was accomplished today. This is something he was planning. Yes. So uh, the I think key evidence will be um, a few things. One, uh, social media source material that he went to prior to the um, act in question, a diagnosis if, if one is made out on a balance of probabilities by uh, an expert of some disorder, whether it is uh, a schizophrenia or what I think more likely is a delusional psychotic disorder. And then more importantly, can the defense establish uh, beyond uh, you know the balance of probability, that um, even though uh, there may have been an illness, did it rob him of appreciating the nature and quality of his acts? And I think the answer to that is no. Or two, that he uh, did not know that it was illegal uh, in Canada. And so what you'd have to look at is, was his offending um, uh, in the context of his Disorder Was that disorder an operative component of why he did it? And it can't just simply be, you know, the incel uh, type of, of uh, diatribe that he wanted to fulfill. It has to be linked to something else because people who have mental illness can still know what they are doing is wrong. So you can suffer a significant delusional disorder, yet act on maybe aspects of that delusional disorder, but still know that you're killing a human being or multiple human beings in this case. So I think this is So they have to have. prove, Joe, just to clarify, if you don't mind me interrupting, they have to prove that he didn't know what he was doing is wrong. Right, that it was, that it was legally wrong and morally wrong. So I'll give you an example. Somebody may suffer from a delusion that their next-door neighbor is a disciple of the devil and that they are planning on killing his family. So in a preemptive act, that individual will kill the neighbor to protect his family. It's all within the delusional disorder. It's almost acting or compelling him to act to save he or she to save his family. That is where the disorder is operative at the time of offending and, and affects his ability to know that it was morally or legally wrong in Canada. It's self-defense, right? Um, in, in this case, um, he is very clear in his statement what he wanted to achieve, why he wanted to achieve it, and in fact, he wanted to have himself killed at the end of it. So yes, it all sounds a bit nuts. And indeed, he may be susceptible or suffering from some mental disorder. One would imagine, you know, when you engage in this type of thing. But that said, 
uh, he's given fairly cogent evidence about knowing what he was doing, that he drove on that uh, sidewalk, that he let the van hit these people. And, you know, some evidence, I guess, will be called of people who are there as to how he's maneuvering the vehicle. So, um, and then, you know, clearly his confrontation with police and the comments afterward, I think, are very challenging for the defense to overcome unless there's a lot of evidence that we have not heard about his behavior uh, and his thought processes and state of mind at the time, which would have robbed him of knowing that it was morally and legally wrong. When you watch that interrogation tape, do you think to yourself, wow, who the, the officer that was conducting it did a bang-up job? Oh, great. I mean, you know, he let him speak. I mean, he gently prodded him along in in not a leading manner. And this gentleman just clearly wanted to tell his story. He just clearly wanted to tell what he's experienced, uh, you know, how he became radicalized, how he planned it, and why he wanted to do it. So it was a very comprehensive interview, uh, well done, which gives a very good view into the state of mind of Mr. Manassian. How hard is it to, to uh, prove uh, a not criminally responsible uh, case? It's hard. You know, it's hard. You know, and there, there are cases uh, when people are still mentally ill and they act on it, but there, you know, there's evidence that they knew what they were doing was wrong and that they appreciated the nature of their acts. It's not easy. You see it more in cases when people have florid psychotic disorders where they are disorganized. Um, they're immediately talking about the things that are clearly uh, not in touch with reality. And um, you don't have that in this case. In this case, it's a situation where he's linked with a known movement, the incel movement. It's radicalizing. It's definitely directed with violence against women. Um, it's a certain belief structure. Um, and, you know, one would imagine that you have to be somewhat susceptible mentally for a number of reasons to to even engage in reading this stuff. But it's really an uphill battle here because from, from what we have uh, in the public media and, and in, in, in the public domain about what he said, it's very hard to get around the fact that he knew what he was doing and appreciated the nature of his acts, even though he may have very well been suffering from some type of psychotic or delusional disorder. He is facing 10 counts of first-degree murder. I know it, it carries an automatic life sentence of, uh, in prison, the, the first-degree murder ca- uh, count. So there's 10 of them. That He could be facing a lot of jail time. What happens if Manazian is found not criminally responsible? So if he's found not criminally responsible, he'd be held in jail, and then he would have to appear before the Ontario Review Board uh, within a 45-day period. At that time, a further assessment would take place likely connected to a doctor at CAMH um, because it's in Toronto. And that assessment will then um, talk about uh, the disorder, how it's impacted him, uh, if there's been any treatment uh, over time, if he's recovering, uh, what his risk uh, level is, and it'll speak to collateral information as well. So it'll give a wealth of information as to what his mental state is at the time of the hearing, and he's likely to be detained um, at either a facility like uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health or even to a higher facility, uh, the one in Penetang, which the names are changing these days, but they call them mm-hmm. secure forensic units. But uh, it would be like a maximum secure unit. So he did, he would not be getting liberties like going out to the community for coffee. I mean, he would be in a locked, double locked uh, unit for a considerable amount of time. And if it is a delusional disorder, I can tell you from experience, they're not easy to treat. 
And so people can harbor delusional disorders. They are sometimes treatment refractory. You're not able to treat it with medications, and it may continue for years um, and require a lot of um, psychotherapy. Um, so this, so a person who has committed 10 counts of murder uh, and is found NCR, they would find themselves, I, I would, I would imagine, in the forensic system for a number of years in a locked setting with limited, very, very, very limited privileges. Joseph, I want to thank you for your patience today because this case is so important to Torontonians. Uh, the van attack, everybody knows where they were when they heard about it. Uh, unfortunately, there are listeners that are uh, intimately connected with victims in this attack and uh, some people still dealing with PTSD and also injuries that they sustained during this attack. It was the worst mass killing in our history in Toronto. So it is going to uh, have a lot of eyeballs on it, especially now that this is going uh, virtual. I, I really appreciate you making sense of exactly what they're trying to prove today. My pleasure. Anytime to help. I understand the tragedy here and, uh, you know, my best uh, goes out to all the families of the victims. Right now, I want to turn our attention. I know we just did kind of focus on California, what's going on with Uber and Lyft down there. And one of the things that uh, was a result of the election and one of the bills that they voted on. But I want to welcome into the conversation Reggie Cicchini, who is our Global News Washington producer. Reggie, welcome. Good to have you on. Good morning. So uh, I hear that U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr has authorized federal prosecutors in the U.S. to pursue substantial allegations, he says, of voting irregularities. This is before the 2020 presidential election is certified. Can you uh, maybe clarify what it is to certify that election? Who has to certify the election? Is it all the states saying, yep, the counts are done? Um, And how unusual it is that the U.S. Attorney would um, authorize an uh, an investigation. Yeah, so the states uh, need to certify the results on their own, uh, and they have weeks to be able to do that. Typically, uh, it usually happens towards the end of November. It depends on what the state is, but they have between one and three weeks to get through that uh, before it goes to the Electoral College on December 14th for a finalized certification. So that can go to the new House of Representatives when they're uh, sworn in uh, in January. Uh, For the DOJ to be investigating this goes uh, outside of the norms of what normally happens. Uh, We've already seen there has been departures inside uh, main justice uh, for people pushing back on the attorney general's decision to move forward with this. But we also need to make clear here that in Bill Barr's memo saying that he authorizes a pursuit of quote unquote substantial allegations, he also made kind of a caveat here saying that, uh, you know, specious, speculative, fanciful or far-fetched claims should not be a basis for initiating federal inquiries. So it, it raises a question here. Is he doing this to simply satisfy the president and keep him happy? Uh, or does he actually believe that there may be something to these kind of conspiracies the president's been trafficking for the last several months? What would an investigation into this even look like, Reggie? Well, look, there is a department inside uh, the DOJ that handles uh, election fraud and election crime, but they typically do not handle any of these investigations in the weeks after an election and before the results are certified, uh, fearing that this could, you know, possibly lead to a faithless elector in the Electoral College or or potentially get in the way uh, of of counting and finalizing and confirming the votes that Americans have gone out to deal with. Uh, These are things that usually happen after an 
election before an election uh, in the lead up to dealing with um, dealing with cash and dealing with finance. Uh, so that's why we're seeing uh, some people start to leave Maine Justice, uh, simply saying, look, this this attorney general and the DOJ right now have acted as an extension of the White House. The president has made uh, it publicly known that he looks at the attorney general as his main lawyer. Um, and, and it's created a kind of a rift inside uh, Maine Justice. And that's simply because this, at the end of the day, is what is undermining election integrity uh, when you pile that on top of the president's repeated baseless allegations that election integrity was already in trouble uh, because of, of claims of fraud that simply don't exist. Now, uh, from what I'm hearing, Trump is is not anywhere near conceding. In fact, I was reading some rumors that he's just kind of hanging out in the White House, eating an awful lot of fast food. Um, but what is going on? Do we know what Trump's up to? We don't know what he's up to, but you have to ask the question, if the president is so insistent that he has, you know, had this election stolen from him and that he is the winner, where is the president publicly? We haven't seen him uh, since last Thursday. He's sent his surrogates out. He has been all over Twitter, but he's not making himself seen. So is he simply kind of releasing political steam to simply prolong the process and create this as an opportunity to filibuster and take time away from President-elect Biden uh, to get his his ducks in a row before he assumes the office? Or is there something else going on? Because, look, uh, he, he's kind of on his own right now. The vice president's about to go on, a, on vacation. Um, so Donald Trump is sitting inside the White House kind of festering over this um, with people coming to him saying, look, sir, you need to understand that reality is banging on the front door of the White House and you can only ignore um, – you know, the doorbell for so long before you're going to have to deal with it. Uh, but he simply won't. And that's why we're kind of, you know, waiting to see what does President Trump do? How telling is Pence vacation? Well, I mean, look, it's it's, you know, a lot of times after an election, one or the other will take some time off and head down to a retreat that they that they normally would go to. Uh, you know, I think that this is a politically exhausting time for both the campaign and for the administration, but it's also just an uncertain time. You know, the vice president's role right now is unclear, given the fact that the president's role right now is unclear uh, because the president refuses to concede. Uh, you know, we also need to point out here that the president's refusal to acknowledge the, the, the results of this election does have consequences in that the, uh, the, the agency that would ascertain the winner being Joe Biden uh, hasn't done so yet. They're playing along with the president's narrative here and they're keeping money locked up that would go to the president-elect's transition team to allow them to start, you know, vetting a cabinet and become up to date on, on crucial matters of government. Uh, there are lingering consequences that the president's holding on to right now. So it, it's unclear still if this is kind of, you know, just a, a grudge that the president's holding or if he intends to do something further down the road. What's the state of Trump's court filings where lawsuits are concerned? He's been threatening them. He's been threatening them and he's been losing them. There hasn't been a single one except for one uh, kind of Supreme Court, you know, understanding or acceptance in, in Pennsylvania to set aside mail-in ballots that arrived after the election. They're going to segregate those, not count them towards the total. But Pennsylvania's Secretary of State says that it's a negligible number. It's something in and around eight or 9,000. It wouldn't do anything to collapse that lead that Joe Biden has. Every other legal avenue he has been pursuing have been thrown out, either be, you know, based on the fact that there's just no evidence or one judge said it was hearsay amid hearsay. Uh, they're just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks, uh, because even the press secretary's news conference yesterday, which violated terms of the Hatch Act, uh, had brought out accusations, but nobody has brought out evidence 
of fraud and they keep saying for the American public to be patient or they're asking for the American public to bring evidence to them, uh, which, you know, could be just, you know, the, the long drawn out way of saying we have nothing uh, and we're just trying to run out the clock. What's the mood in Washington? I've kind of been thinking about this over the last couple of days, you know, as as people tend to move on. I know we're listening to Trump saying I'm going to you know, bring about lawsuits and he's refusing to concede and stewing about uh, Joe Biden being the president elect. But what is the mood in, in, in Washington? Well, I mean, look, decades of norms are being broken right now by the president not uh, understanding and realizing what the results of that election were. Four years ago, at this moment, Barack Obama invited Donald Trump into the White House to discuss a transfer of power. That is what normally happens, and we're not seeing that right now. Uh, and it, this is just kind of bringing into a broader view uh, the, the the crises and, and divisions that have existed inside this administration. Uh, now that they are on their way out, it's simply just being amplified. Uh, and there's a fear here amongst career politicians in our career uh, 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 members of government in Washington, along with politicians, that the president may simply kind of extend his reach as far as he can go. We already saw him fire his defense secretary yesterday. There are rumors that the FBI is next, that CIA is next, and that he'll continue to just create um, unstable ground in Washington, which makes it more difficult for Joe Biden to govern uh, when, if and when he finally gets the keys to the Oval Office. But it also creates, you know, kind of a, a shaky ground for the U.S. again in the eyes of the globe uh, as they look to see what's going on here. So it's, it's uneasy in Washington, but it's uneasy across the country. And it's uneasy for world leaders who are looking to try to get back to some kind of sense of normal uh, when it comes to relations with the U.S. All right. Well, Reggie, thanks so much for making sense of what's going on, although it is nonsensical sometimes. Uh, in Washington, especially over the last four years. I appreciate your time. Thank you. November 21st, the date when we will find out if the uh, current restrictions to entry into the U.S. via the land border is going to uh, hold up. Will they be extended? Will that land border be closed? Uh, unless you are, you know, one of the essential travelers and essential workers, people uh, going to work or school in the U.S., uh, truck drivers, military families. Essential travel does not include tourism. However, I've always found this bizarre because if you're a snowbird and you want to fly to Florida or wherever you're going to uh, spend your winters, you can go ahead and do that. You just can't drive your car across the border. That's because it's the land border that is restricted right now, right? So what do you do when you have a roadblock sitting in front of you? You fly over it. That is the solution that our uh, next guest came up with. And I think it's a pretty ingenious solution. He stands to make quite a bit of money off of snowbirds who are just chomping at the bit to not only get to Florida or wherever, wherever they uh, spend their winters in a warmer climate in the States, but to drive there. Jeremy Rood is a helicopter pilot and charter manager with Great Lakes Helicopter in Cambridge. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Your story's great. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So you found a way um, past this roadblock, which happens to be the U.S. border being closed unless you are a non-essential traveler. And what is that? Yeah, so just like the uh, commercial airlines, WestJet, Air Canada, you're able to hop on a commercial airline in Toronto and fly your way down to Florida. Travel into the States is permissible by air, uh, but not uh, by land. So just like they are, we're a commercial uh, helicopter company and we're able to fly folks across the border and uh, get them on their way to Florida. And so we've uh, teamed up with uh, Greg McClay, McClay's Transport, and uh, he's able to uh, import your vehicles 
and and deliver them to the airport. Two birds, one stone. He takes the car, drives it across the border uh, with his truck to the airport. You load up passengers and their pets, fly them uh, via your helicopter across the U.S. border to the uh, airport, and then they get in their car and drive the rest of the way. Is that what's going on? You betcha. It's rather seamless. You know, we get our, our guests show up at the airport uh, in the morning with their cars. Their cars are loaded on a flatbed trailer. Uh, our guests, you know, are then flown to Buffalo. It's about a 30-minute flight by helicopter. You get a great view of Niagara Falls en route. And uh, we land you in Buffalo where we then clear customs. And once U.S. Customs clear you, uh, we would walk you right out to your car. And uh, it's only a few steps away from where we land and away you go. You maintain this isn't a loophole. You just found your way over a roadblock. This is on the up and up. This is totally on the up and up, just like the uh, commercial carriers are doing it. Air Canada, WestJet, Delta, uh, we're doing the same thing. We're we're a commercial carrier, and so we're bringing people in just by private helicopter. That way, you know, with the uh, pandemic that's going on, you're in your own private of your own uh, helicopter. You don't have to be with a bunch of other guests. And uh, that helps limit the risk factor with all that. And then we're able to import your car, which is completely uh, on the up and up and legal with the proper documentation across the border. And away you go. It's uh, an interesting business move. Was this really precipitated by your parents and and them needing to get to the States to uh, spend their winters down in a warmer climate? Absolutely. For me, it's about, you know, getting finding a way to get snowbirds across. It started with my parents. You know, uh, being stuck here in the winter, if you have health issues, arthritis, and a number of other things, being in the cold, damp, wet climate isn't going to be good for you, especially you're not able to get outside and exercise in the snow. So, you know, for them, it's, you know, if you can get some of these snowbirds across that are older in their age and maybe don't have the health issues, at least they're going to be down, self-isolating in their own properties in Florida, or at least they can get outside, they can exercise, they can have good health with the warmer weather and all that other stuff. So, for me, it's more of a passion of just getting people across so they can be healthy and stay fit and uh, during the winter months like they've always done. It's pretty much a one-way ticket because you can drive from the States into Canada in your car as long as you know that you've got a quarantine Quarantine when you get here. That's right. Yeah, they, uh, they can't deny a Canadian citizen entry into Canada. And that's exactly it. When you get back to Canada, you got a quarantine and, and you're all good. So, you know. I can't be the only one uh, wondering this, and I know it's rude to talk about money, but what are we talking for a, a ticket in the helicopter to meet your car on the other side? Is this like, uh, have you, uh, do you charge for the helicopter ride and your buddy who takes the car down charge separately, or did you kind of go in and start a separate business together? Is it, is it a one-cost ticket? Yeah, so, you know, there is some folks that uh, so some of them are just looking for the ride in a helicopter and maybe they're married to an American partner, so they're able to drive across and some people want the full package. So we're able to split up. The full package is $1,900 and that will get you, you know, your couple of you and your pet in a helicopter across the border and your car. If you're looking for helicopter transportation only, that's $1,200 and then uh, your car, if you're looking just for it, that's $700. And how many people have uh, exhibited interest in this? I would say at this point, we're definitely into the hundreds at this point. Um, Obviously, with the article being published in the Star today, we've had a very busy morning, and uh, we're very grateful for that. And, you know, folks want to get over there. They've got their investments. You know, like I said, they're worried about their health. And so folks are looking for a way to go, and this is completely permissible. And uh, it's on the up and up, so we're happy to be able to help these folks along. To the best of your knowledge, is anyone else doing this, or is this just something that you are offering right now? 
there is another carrier that um, that that is doing it. I mean, you can hire any private um, uh, aircraft carrier company that flies in the states and do it. Uh, we're paired together with Greg McClay, who's you know with our partnership, so we're able to get people's vehicles across, and that's a big thing for the snowbirds with packing all your stuff in your car and being able to have a vehicle down south to drive around in. What about the safety protocol? Because we are in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, how many people are allowed on the helicopter at once? What are you limiting that to? Because these are people that would probably be snowbirds or older. We're talking about a higher risk clientele. You're right. So the safety protocols uh, that we're taking is we're only letting people of the same family or same group in the helicopter. We are not mixing uh, people of different uh, families. So that way it's your own private chartered helicopter with just you and your pets inside. And obviously, you know, the all safety protocols are in place. The helicopter is completely sanitized after uh, every use and everybody on board is required to wear masks at all times. And how many flights are you taking a day? Uh, it depends on how many charters we have, um, but we, we can do five flights a day. Okay, so you're going to be busy for the foreseeable future. Yeah, well, that's what we hope for. I mean, COVID has been uh, not a very good thing for a lot of people, and it's hurt a lot of businesses, and uh, especially the aviation industry. So anywhere that there's an opportunity that we can grow our business and try to make up for some of the shortfalls due to COVID, we're definitely uh, excited about that. Jeremy, how do people get in touch with you if they're interested? Absolutely. If uh, you're interested to get in touch with us, uh, you can call us direct at 1-519-650-4542. Or you can reach out to us an email at info at glheli.ca. All right. You know what we're going to do? We're going to upload this to our podcast because I have a feeling that more than a few snowbirds were running around going, where's that pen? Honey, where's the pen? Oh, man, I don't know what Absolutely. he just said. Something about the helicopter and the... So we'll upload it onto the... Uh, wherever you download your podcast, The Kelly Cotrera Show. I know we've got a lot of techno-savvy uh, snowbirds out there that'll be able to do that. So thanks so much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I right, very much. Thank you for your time. Have a great day. All right, cheers. That's Jeremy Rood, who is a helicopter pilot and charter manager with Great Lakes Helicopter in Cambridge. And they are uh, helping out snowbirds cross the border. We'll helicopter over that roadblock, which happens to be the land border. And you can meet your car on the other side. I love that. So smart. All right. Well, that's it for the podcast. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. If you have a chance to subscribe to the podcast, that makes your life easier. And if your life is easier, hey, that's a good thing. Don't forget, we broadcast live between 9 and noon on 640 Toronto. If you have a second to tune in, please do. Otherwise, have a great day. Talk to you soon.